Recovery Elevator, episode 40. It just got progressively worse over from my early 20s to my mid-20s to my late 20s. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety app tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year, two months, two weeks, and four days, which is freaking awesome. On today's podcast, I've got not one, but two guests. I've got Felicia. She's a mother of three, and she's got 56 days of sobriety. After that, I'm doing a checkup with good old Robert. He's done two interviews on the podcast, and this one is the checkup that we said we would do in about three to four weeks after his last interview. The topic of today's podcast is self-loathing. Let me tell you right now, after being sober for one year, Two months and two weeks, the self-loathing, it continues into recovery. What exactly is self-loathing? Self-loathing is kicking the shit out of yourself, mostly verbally. But believe me, I've done it physically as well, and I'm not even joking. Self-loathing for me came from the shame and the guilt of not being able to, air quotes, control this gosh darn drinking thing. I verbally, intrinsically kicked the shit out of myself for about a decade because I couldn't beat or control this so-called alcohol thing or my drinking problem, which I denied having for near short of a decade. So let me just walk you through an average morning from, I don't know, 2005 to about a year ago. And if you're listening to this podcast episode, I don't know, maybe at your grandma's house, or if you've got your speakers turned up, plug in your headset or just turn it down. Or if you've got kids in the backseat of your car, um, just do the old earmuffs things and have them have their hands on their ears for just a couple minutes. I really don't like to use profanity in these podcasts, but I feel like to really do this topic justice, it's got to happen. And more specifically, I'm going to reference the summer of 2014, where in addition to the poison in liquid format sold on basically every shelf in a grocery store or gas station in America, that was kicking my ass, including my number one enemy, Paul, Pablo. Pablo be my Spanish name. Now, however, I have personified my addiction or externalized that and given it a name. Gary and alcohol, Gary would be my addiction, were kicking the shit out of me. But basically, it was myself kicking the shit out of myself with alcohol. Quite the tag team to yourself. As you can imagine, it's extremely unhealthy. So here's just an average morning in the summer of 2014. I'd wake up. My head would hurt, and I knew that I had blacked out the previous night. And I would just start off just saying, God damn it, motherfucker, you eating motherfucker, motherfucker. I cannot believe God, I told you we were not going to drink last night. We're going to have one fucking drink. No, you had to drink everything in the goddamn bar. Go check your wallet, Paul. Oh, $55 spent. Oh, my fuck you, Paul. This is goddamn ridiculous. Well, that you know what, Paul? You're such a weak fucking person. Today is going to be different. I know that because today's we are done drinking forever. We are done drinking forever. So my feet hit the ground after that diatribe against myself. And that's the first 30 or 40 seconds of dialogue that I hear in a day. Talk about getting up on the wrong side of the bed. And so I move forward with my daily routine I'm brushing my teeth, and in my mind, I'm like, okay, I know I had some booze in the fridge, but I don't think I drank at all. It shouldn't be this bad. Walk into the kitchen, open up the refrigerator. Paul, you motherfucking piece of shit. I told you we weren't going to do this shit again, but here we are last night doing it again. How many nights in a row is this? Well, you can't have just one. Those 
damn television shows and on TV, they can all just have one. What the fuck is wrong with you, Paul? So within like 30 minutes of my morning, well, it depends on what your definition of morning is. I was a pretty liberal sleeper back then when I couldn't get my ass out of bed because I was hungover and a total piece of shit. Paul, you just did it again right there. You're kicking your own ass and you got to stop. But yeah, so like 30 minutes into my morning and I have already verbally harassed myself basically into my own turtle shell. And if this verbal harassment were actually a physical beating, I'd be walking out that door with two black eyes, a compound fracture on my leg, a tourniquet, three slings basically for every limb I have and probably pushing myself in a wheelchair because that's how brutal this verbal self-loathing harassment was that I would do to myself every single day. Now, you might be saying to yourself, God, that guy Gary, your addiction, he's a dick. Why would he do this to you? But here is the conundrum of the whole thing. Gary, he sleeps in every morning. Gary, my addiction, he sleeps in. It's not Gary beating the shit out of me. It's myself. Gary wakes up around noon, checks in with the brain, says, oh, Yep, Paul did the normal thing. He kicked the shit out of himself for a good you know, 30, 40 minutes this morning, and uh, I can just go ahead and relax, and oh, look, Gilmore Girls are on TV. And Gary can just hang out, because no matter how much that I beat myself up, told myself that I am done drinking forever, Gary knows that as the day progresses, he's just going to throw in these little snippets, these little snippets that will eventually convince myself to drink again. I mean, I was like Ronda Rousey in that UFC fight. My addiction was that badass Holmes. I talked a mean game to my addiction in the morning. I would say, F you addiction, I'm done. I am done drinking today. I'd come out of the ring hot. I wouldn't even shake hands in the middle of the ring. But my addiction, it's got a game plan. And it knows exactly what it's doing. That's you, Gary. And eventually, I get the shit kicked out of me. Just like that Ronda Rousey girl got the shit kicked out of her by Miss Holmes. And getting a crap kicked out of me, that all happens before I start my day. You can imagine how tremendously unhealthy or unproductive or unhappy or miserable somebody like that would be. And that was me for a long time. Because newsflash, life is hard. And life is probably going to do a pretty good job of kicking the crap out of yourself on its own. You don't need yourself beating the shit out of yourself as well. Why do we do it? Well, it could be this gosh darn stigma. This thing is a disease. It kicks our ass already. We don't need to do it ourselves. And this is something that I have been struggling with big time as of late. Even with 14 months of sobriety in two weeks, I still self-loathe. I am still guilty of kicking the crap out of myself in the morning. Yeah, I'm not hungover, but sometimes I feel hungover because the night before, I pulled into the gas station. I had one donut. I ate the donut, did a couple laps, pulled in the gas station, and bought three more donuts. The next day, I'm like, Paul, what the fuck did it again? But I need to chill out. I need to say, Paul, Pablo, chill out, my man. Dude, we can't be perfect. Hell, there's no fun in being perfect. Nobody is perfect. If you have five donuts the next day you feel like shit, feel like shit, Paul. Your body is digesting pretty much just pure garbage food. Preservatives, loads of gluten. Oh, I don't know. Loads of maple flavoring just as pure sugar. Feel like shit. Let your body just feel bad, but don't add on top of that more icing on that donut, which is yourself beating the shit out of yourself. Don't do that, Pablo. I'm talking to yourself right now, Pablo. You will eat 400 Reese's Pieces again before you go to bed. Don't kick yourself while you're down the next day. 
we alcoholics are so hard on ourselves and it's not even the addiction that's really doing it. It's not that guy, Gary, my addiction, standing on top of a podium, pointing a finger at my chest, yelling at me. No, he's in a hammock. He's got his feet kicked up. He's enjoying the ride. But do me a solid recovery elevator. Don't be so hard on yourselves. Alcohol, it does a fantastic job of kicking the shit out of us. Don't do it to yourself. And again, I'm going to replay this episode back to myself. Pablo, don't kick the shit out of yourself. Just stop. It's not worth it. Don't be so hard on yourself. This is a disease. Some diseases, there is no cure. I will take this disease over other diseases because although there's not a cure, there is a solution to this disease. I will gladly take that over other diseases that doesn't have a cure yet. Before we get into our interviewees, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. And now let's hear from our first of two guests today. Felicia, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me this morning. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Felicia, we're going to get right into this. How long have you been sober? Well, this time I am, let's see, 56 days sober, so just shy of two months. Nice. Yeah. And and, and you say this time. Tell me me about what this time air quotations means. I guess I just kept getting back on the elevator. (laughs) So I've had... I've had a, a good stint of sobriety. I built up some years. I went back out, got in, you know, a little more pain, a little more trouble, and got sober again. And then I <laughs> drank again. And recently, I would call this my fourth good sober shot. <laughs> well, you've got 56 days on the shelf. That's fantastic. We're going to get more end of your fourth time getting off the elevator. And let's learn a little bit more about you, Felicia. Let's give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old you are, are you married, do you have kiddos, you know, what do you like to do for fun? Okay, so I'm 35, I have three kids. I, yes, I'm married to a (laughs) non-alcoholic, and I like to get outdoors for fun, and I spend a lot of time with my kids, so my life right now can have a lot of, like, mommy groups and kid play dates, but that's fun, too. (laughs) I hear those mommy groups have a lot of wine involved. Am I right? You know, I think it depends on the group. Sure. Um, But that's always an underlying joke. Like, oh, it's hard being a mom today. I need a glass of wine. Yep. Felicia, let's jump right into the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Sounds like you've been doing the elevator dance, which I've still got to make that YouTube video of. It's basically like you're going to hit the door stop button, the door open, door stop, door open. You know, I'm going to get off the elevator, but I'm not ready. And you sounds like you're getting on and off. This is your fourth time. Talk to me about your elevator. When did this, you know, 56 days ago, did something happen or what made you decide to quit drinking? You know, it's really strange, but nothing happened 56 days ago. I just like knew in my heart that I was done. I just finally... If you're in a 12-step program, we would say, I finally surrendered. I just knew I I was done. And it was clear to me at that point and how differently I had felt making that decision and just giving up. I'm done. I'm an alcoholic. 
that that was something I had never truly done in the past. I I think always in the back of my mind, I was like, eh, maybe I'm not an alcoholic, you know, maybe this all of these things will clear up and I'll be able to drink normally or have a glass of wine with my mom friends or have a date with my husband and have, you know, have a couple beers at a concert. It was always in the back of my mind that, you know, I think I don't want to be different. I think I think I might not be an alcoholic and and I tried everything <laughs> to to try to drink normally and to not be an alcoholic, but when I finally came to it, I just am and that's that's just a part of who I am and it doesn't define me and I had to be just done and truly surrendered. So, that's all. Nothing really happened. I I just surrendered. Listeners, before we've even hit the four-minute mark, there has been a massive value bomb. And I'm going to say it right now, Felicia, quoting you, I knew in my heart I was done. And right after that, you said you finally surrendered. And that is almost the point where I had when I said that same thing on September 7th is when my higher power was like, all right, you dumbass, Paul, we're finally ready to do this. And I knew in my heart I was done as well. And Felicia, let's back it up a little bit. Maybe before the first time you quit drinking. What talk to me about your drinking habits? Did you you know, did you drink a lot in high school in your twenties and, and things like that? I think I drank in high school, not a lot. I would say what's normal for a high school kid, but that's coming from my alcoholic brain. So who knows what's normal for a yeah, high school no kidding. kid. I experimented with drinking, I drank with my friends, I did stupid, silly things when I was drunk in high school. In my 20s and in college, it got a little worse or better. I don't know, however you want to look at it. I drank more frequently and I started to feel like, yeah, hey, this is okay. You know, I have a little bit more confidence when I'm drunk. I feel a little bit more attractive. I'm a little funnier, more courageous and things just seem easier. So I kind of, I was seeing it for a while. And after a while, it turned into more like, you know, things would happen that I would be so mortified about, or maybe I would be blackout drunk and I couldn't remember what I had done the night before and had I embarrassed myself or, or someone else that was with me. And I would just wake up with this feeling of dread and not knowing what happened. And like, I can remember the feeling of, oh, I don't want to call anyone because I don't want them to tell me what I did or didn't do, but I need mm. to call someone. Did I do something terrible? Just that not knowing. I'd have to drink that feeling away eventually. And I don't know. It just got progressively worse over from my early 20s to my mid 20s to my late 20s to the things I would do. You know, I'd be losing a purse, a shoe, a wallet. Getting home, I had driven a car, not knowing how I had gotten there. Drinking at work, finding bottles everywhere in my arms of my clothing, hanging up in my closet. Cause, you know, I drink them, finish them, and hide them in there. In my shoes, just weird, wacky things. Yeah, Felicia, talk just, to me about, you said the progression of it. So like maybe late 20s, it's progressed to something maybe where you're like, okay, I'm going to try to curtail a bit. Did you ever try to do that? Maybe like moderate or put a plan in place and not fully admit you're an alcoholic, but just say, all right, I'm only a weekend drinking girl, guys. Yeah, I think Oh, my thing was I would volunteer to be the designated driver. No, so okay. everyone else could party. And then I would think, well, that's going to make sure I'm not going to drink. I'm the designated driver. I just can't. And that never happened, and, and I let everybody down, and nobody had a ride home. <laughs> but, oh. So things like that. And eventually, at the when my drinking had gotten pretty awful, people were saying things to me and not wanting to be around me, and, hey, maybe you need to stop drinking. I, in my late 20s, got pregnant with my oldest son. 
So I was pregnant for nine months and didn't drink anything. And so that had me thinking at the end of my pregnancy, oh, look, I quit. No problem. You know, I'm not an alcoholic. It's fine. And, and then after I had the baby, I started drinking again and picked up right where I had left off. So I just was drinking at home now instead of going out. Not good. Felicia, I'm sure you and all women in general, if they ever see me, they're going to slap me for saying this. But I remember, you know, when I was in my battle, I'm like, man, if if I was a woman, I, I just would get pregnant and then I'd be forced to get sober for, for nine months. They they have it so easy. You know, my bad. I'm, I apologize in advance for saying that right now. But yeah, so you went right that back to That to drinking. me, that is right on. To me, that is right on. That thought, I have three children now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it's almost a relief, like, oh, I'm pregnant, I can't drink. That's a thought that I've had. Hey, I'm going to have a baby. That will make me stop drinking. It's not something I don't think from me would earn you a slap, but, I mean, that's how crazy we think. Those are thoughts that that we have. There's something wrong with my thinking. (laughs) Hence, this is the thinking disease and not so much of a drinking disease, which is so baffling to think about. And, And tell me more about that. This is a thinking disease, right? It is. If you've been in the rooms and you've heard it said, it's a three-part disease. It's mental, it's spiritual, and it's physical. But the thinking part of this is I just don't think like other people. And I can obsess on anything. It can be drinking. It can be what I said a week ago that who I said it to isn't even thinking about. And it can put me in such a tailspin that, you know, I can't breathe. I can't relax. I'm obsessing and I'm obsessing and I'm trying to control things. And I'm worried about everything. It's too much anxiety. It really is a problem with our thinking, or for me, it's a problem with my thinking. I can see it sometimes in my husband's face when I'll say something very alcoholic or be thinking alcoholically and obsessing about something that isn't a big deal to someone else, and he just looks at me like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, what, what's it like with being married to a normal drinker? Have you been married for a while? Did he have any indication from the start that you might be an alcoholic? Well, God bless him. He's an amazing man, but... Being married to a non-alcoholic, when we met, he had never seen me drinking. So I had been sober for probably about five years when we met. And all through our dating, he hadn't seen me drink for, for those years and years. So after I had our first child and I said, you know, I think I'm going to have a drink. There were no red flags for him. No, no bells went off. And he was like, yeah, okay. He hadn't seen the crazy, destructive mess that I am when I drink. I hadn't ravaged through his life and caused him harm and pain like I did with other people close to me. So he was like, yeah. And I think me, being the alcoholic that I am, I can convince myself and I can convince my husband, yeah, it's okay if I have a drink, you know? Yeah, I'm not alcoholic. I think I just need to go to church a little more. It's a two-edged sword there, you know. It's great that he's yeah. not an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> and he has some same thoughts, but it, it's also a disadvantage for me if I need someone to be accountable to. Sure, and what we do is there's a rug, and let's just sweep this whole drinking thing underneath it, is what I did with most of my relationships. Yeah, I got into a relationship a couple years ago, and I was sober for it, and she had no idea what it really meant. You know, I started drinking, and you know, two months later, she dumped me. So that's just how that went. Very fast. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, it was a good time. Really good time. Just kidding. You did say something. You were sober for five years. Am I correct? Did I hear you say that? Yeah, just about, just shy of five years. I think. God, I gotta <laughs> get this out of you. I mean, this helps me stay sober. But Felicia, so you're sober for five years. Mm-hmm. 
you know, this is your fourth times the charm. I'm on like the 32nd times the charm with a year and a month of sobriety. Like walk me back. Like, so five years, how much other times or, or durations of sobriety did you have? So I got sober the, the first time after I destroyed my life and, you know, came to face possibly losing my oldest son, splitting up with his father. And so that's what motivated me to stop drinking. I was in enough fear and pain that I needed to stop. And it was so severe the emotional and legal consequences that I was facing that I just, I was done. And, you know, I worked my program with people. I, I went to rehab for 30 days. And during that five years, all my friends were in sobriety and in recovery. And then I just started slowly, like, getting too busy to do those things that were keeping me sober. I was too busy to make it to a meeting. And I was too involved with my children to, you know, show up for another alcoholic. And it just kind of slowly things started falling away. And then my, my little head talk would get in there like, oh, you're fine. Look at your life. It's great. You have these beautiful kids. You have a wonderful family. And a lot of these bridges I had burned in the past were repaired. And, you know, my life started looking pretty good. I finished school and bought a home and, you know, things get better when we stop drinking. Mm-hmm. So that's where... My brain started telling me, it's okay if I have a little drink, I deserve it. And I stepped away from the things that were keeping me sober, and I fell off. And pretty quickly, I had some consequences. I I got another DUI. That's what got me to stop the next time. I stopped drinking. Oh, DUI. Time to stop. Courts involved, legal consequences. All that fear came rushing back from the things that had happened in the past, kind of showing me, hey, this is what happens when you drink, my friend. You better stop. So I stopped drinking because I I had gotten another DUI. And... While I was going through that, while while I was having legal issues and trying to hide everything from my friends in AA, because, oh, man, if I tell them what's really going on, then they're not going to accept me. I have to look good. I was still drinking. So, I mean, it's just a crazy thing. Instead of asking for support and being honest, I think that's the big thing there. Why you have to be honest with yourself. And I wasn't being honest with myself. So I stopped for consequences three times in the past. And this time, nothing happened. I didn't even really hit a bottom. I just finally surrendered. I just felt like, I'm done. I'm ready for something different. And I've tried it every other way. I'm going to give this a a shot wholeheartedly. I've said this before, Felicia, and I'm guilty as charged, where fear will get people sober. Fear, for me, had gotten me sober. It'll get you sober, but it won't keep you sober. It's not until you have fear, but a shred of hope. It's not until you have just a glimmer of hope in the distance that you will remain sober. And that's what it sounds like when you said you knew in your heart there wasn't really a bottom. There wasn't an event that really created that fear, that driving nail that said, look, if I don't get sober, I'm going to go to jail for the rest of my life. If I don't get sober, I'm going to kill someone. That's fear-based decisions. It's the hope-based decisions. And can you, do you think that's why it was different this time 56 days ago? I do. I absolutely do think that's why it was different. And hope plays into that whole spirituality thing. Fear motivates us to do a lot of stuff, but eventually things change. It's got to be a little deeper. And I think that hope really comes into play there. It's hard to see hope too when you're in a lot of fear. Oh, it's there, but you're blind to it. One thing we talk about here is our recovery portfolio. And I like to even think of it in a tangible thing. You're carrying around your portfolio all the things you do to get 56 days of sobriety. Walk us through your recovery, your program, what you do on a daily basis to maintain your sobriety. Well, I start my day with some suggested reading from my sponsor. I read pages 83 to 88. I do a couple other readings from some um, daily reflection books that I like, not necessarily affiliated with AA. 
I do a little prayer and meditation. And I just let go. I stop trying to be in control. Having three kids is helpful with that as well. (laughs) (laughs) I have no control. And when I just accept that, things seem to ride along nice and smooth. I take a little guidance from people who have a little more wisdom than I do and a little more time than I do. And when I get a little bit obsessive and crazy, I call someone and I get honest. I think the biggest things for me right now are just being open and being honest and having forgiveness for yourself. Because that shame that, oh, yuck, I can't believe I did that, or oh my God, I feel so guilty. Those things keep us sick and you just have to forgive yourself. And that final surrender and this hope that we're talking about is so incredibly freeing. Just the feeling is amazing. It's a huge weight. It's the world lifted off your shoulders. You can breathe easier. The tightness in your stomach goes away. And all I did was walk into a meeting and say, hey, I'm at day one again, and and just know I was really done. I can't tell you how much lighter I felt. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Felicia, that weight, that thousand pound grill on your shoulders, I know exactly what you mean. The very first episode when I said recovery elevator episode zero, zero, this weight just went through the microphone, through the wires, out into cyberspace because I was creating accountability and being honest with myself and being honest with you, Felicia, being honest with the listeners. And I didn't even really know it was going to happen. But after each episode, just a little bit more of this gorilla went through this fiber optic cable, shall we say, into the net. It's liberating. It is so free. It's unreal. And earlier you mentioned prayer and meditation. What does that look like for you? Meditation is more what I'm interested, actually. But both. Okay. So being an alcoholic, I get a little crazy obsessive about if I'm doing this correctly. Am I doing this right? How do I meditate? I don't know if I'm meditating right. So I tend to buy a lot of books about a lot of things and think I'm going to be an expert on them. Sure. (laughs) And what it boils down to for me is I just sit with myself and I'm quiet and I'm still. And in that place, I think you can hear your heart more. And I think that God talks to me through my heart, whatever your God looks like or however that works for you. But when I'm hearing something from my heart, from my center, like that's the truth for me. My head wants to reason and logic and freak out and anxiety. And that's not what's true for me, that that gets me into trouble. But if I'm still and I'm quiet, I can hear a little deeper than that. That's what my meditation is. I love it. I love it. And that is something that I've struggled with too. In the rooms, you hear the word meditation you know, hundreds of times. You're like, all right, I got to learn this meditation. And you know, listeners, I've actually got a meditation specialist going to be on the in a podcast, I think episode 40 or 41. And it's going to be really cool because that's a part of my recovery portfolio that's pretty bleak. It's just, uh, you know, pretty much a blank page and I breathe in for five seconds, breathe out for five seconds. But what you said right there, just sit there and be calm and let thoughts come into your heart. It's amazing. Talk to me with serenity and peace in this anxiety. Is sobriety anxiety, is, is your anxiety gone away? Or not gone away, but is it better? It is so much less. And if I get into anxiety, instead of drinking it away, which is totally counterproductive because I have a way worse panic attack after that alcohol wears off. But instead of drinking it away, I can sit with it and I can figure out like what's causing this, where is this coming from? And just learning to kind of accept your emotions and feel them and then let them go is way better than Xanax. (laughs) (laughs) Alcohol and a pill. You just have to deal with yourself. Like we're humans and we feel things and it's uncomfortable and sometimes yucky, but it passes. 
nothing is permanent. So it's good. It's just taught me to really sit with myself. I think we have to grow and forgive ourselves and support ourselves and love ourselves. And I have a hard time doing that. I think a lot of us do. But sitting with yourself through those uncomfortable times, it's healing for me. And it's and it's hopeful you get a little stronger every time. So hmm. love it. Felicia, we have reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready? Uh-oh, let's do it. <laughs> All right, Felicia, question number one. What was your worst memory from drinking? My worst memory. The worst. Absolute worst. I think blackouts were my worst thing, just not having any clue what I did and waking up in fear and panic and anxiety. I will never get those back. That is the worst, just not knowing, just total blank spot in the memory. And that happened a lot. Mm. Felicia, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? I'm going to just take it a day at a time. I feel good now, so I'm going to just keep doing what I'm doing, take it a day at a time. I'm getting ready to start another four step and just keep walking the path. Love it. Next question, Felicia, what's your favorite resource in recovery? This can be a 12-step program. This could be a book. What's your favorite resource? My favorite resource. I think the recovery community itself is a great resource. I think being connected with other people who understand you is key. And you can find a lot of support there. You can find a little wisdom there. You can show up at a meeting and get a ton of relief when you need it. It's just nice to be around people who get you. This is a communal disease. And in the professional world, that would be called networking. And I could not agree more. Number four, Felicia, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? These little AA sayings and cliche things used to drive me bonkers and I hated them. But I have one I really love right now, which is I can't, but God can. I think I'll let him, which coincides to step one, two, and three. That's what I'm loving right now. I can't, God can. I think I'll let him. Wow. I can't. HP can. think I'm going to let him give it a shot. Because my ideas and actions landed me in this seat. That's great. I love it. Last up, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in early recovery or are thinking about quitting drinking? I would say forgive yourself and be open because that fear and that shame is what's going to keep you drinking. And if you're thinking about quitting, I mean, give it a shot. What do you have to lose? Love it. Love it. Love it. And last up, let's customize this interview. Give us your own personal, you might be an alcoholic if line, Felicia. This one's very personal to me. I'm sure I'll get a laugh out of my husband. You might be an alcoholic if a loved one has to install an app on your phone so they can find you after you've been drinking and you're in a blackout and don't know where you are and want to come home. <laughs> oh, love it. I love it. Very personal. I appreciate you sharing that as well as everything else you've shared with us, Felicia. You've helped me stay sober. and I know a lot of people are going to find value to this. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. You guys remember Robert. He's one of my favorite people that I have met with this whole Recovery Elevator project. We text back and forth. I never would have met this guy had it not been for Recovery Elevator. So let's check back in with Robert. Robert, how are you? No, not so good, Paul. Not so good. I appreciate your honesty. Too many times you just say, oh, yeah, good. I'm going to sweep this day under the rug. Right. Tell me about that. How come you're not doing so hot today? Well, I mean, it was on a Saturday. All day long, I kept my, my wife and my son went to the Ole Miss game. My wife's a rebel, and I'm a bulldog, so we're rivals. Yeah. We have a house divided. But um, they went to uh, the Ole Miss game Saturday, and I had kind of decided maybe on Thursday night that I was going to drink Saturday. 
I just had that feeling, you know, it just kind of was kind of a itching at me or however you want to describe it. But I was just feeling like I know I'm going to drink Saturday because everybody's going to be gone and I'm going to be in the house by myself. Of course, I have a big list of chores that I like to do and I'm very active. Anyway, I just knew that I was going to drink. And so uh, Saturday rolled around, got up that morning, worked, stayed busy. And then towards late afternoon with football going on all day and me kind of keeping an eye on it as I worked, I started thinking, you know, that itch that I was getting earlier in the week or later in the week on Thursday just started becoming obvious. And so I ran and got some beer. Yep. And then right about that time, a buddy of mine, a drinking buddy of mine called me. He was like, what's up, man? I got a free night. You want to drink? And I'm like, sure. So he comes over and um, and we drink. We just we watched Mississippi State play Kentucky and that game got a hand pretty quick. State started whooping up on him pretty good towards the second quarter, and then uh, and then we went <laughs> over to a friend. This is this is kind of important. We went over to a, a friend of mine who's a good friend of mine in high school, and uh, another good friend of mine. He he continued to be a good friend of mine in um, college, but he was just a wild ass. I mean, this guy was just a crazy, crazy person. Yeah. And I had heard a lot of bad things about him. You know, about how he just kind of become a recluse and he's just drinking himself to death, basically. That's a little bit, I guess, dramatic to say that, but he's just doing a lot of drinking. So me and I said, Jonathan, let's go over and see Jason. Let's see how he's doing. He didn't live too far from where I live. And man, we went over there and it was the most depressing thing I've ever seen. Um, I mean, we laughed a lot, but I mean, he is so out of control. Uh, we got there. His, he had a pork tenderloin like on the grill that was burnt. Oh. And we, so we, we pulled up. We saw that. And we, I was like, this is burnt. And John was like, well, do you want to go in? I was like, yeah, let's go on in. And then right about the time we were walking into his house or knocking on the door, you know, he came and he was just pitiful, pitiful shape. Uh, he, he had a scotch and water and he was, hey, I'll come on in. And he was laughing. And you know, we went in, his kitchen was destroyed. You just had crap everywhere. And he would walk around and leave his drink and then go make another one. You know, he was doing that move and uh, he was trying to get me to drink. I, had, I was drinking beer at the time and I was like, no, I'm good. I don't really want to do that. He had tried to cut his hair, you know, and his hair was all messed up, and he started laughing about it. And I was like, well, let me help you out with your hair. And so he sat down, and I, I cut his hair for him. He had, like, a, a guard on a razor. Oh. And I helped him out, and I was like, yeah, I know. I said, I can't do anything with your back, buddy, because you've got some sort of lightning bolt going down the back of your hair. I'll, I'll do my best. And he was laughing. And anyway, so that was sad oh, to us. Man, we it... laughed with him, of course, because he was cracking us up. But at the same time, I was, I was visualizing myself at, at this state. And uh, that was a wake-up call. So that was Saturday night. I came home. I stopped drinking, called my wife, who was at the Ole Miss game, and they were on their way home, my wife and son, and touched base with them. And at that point, I had had a shower and started sobering up eight. You know, I didn't tell her I drank. I didn't want to tell her that, so I was giving her the thumbs up over the phone. Okay, Sunday morning, uh, we had a big old Knights of Columbus. Columbus, we had a chili cook-off for my school and church, and uh, I was on one of the teams. I was on the Knights of Columbus team. So I got there early Sunday morning. And then we started cooking our chili and doing all that. And then everybody was popping beer around me. It was probably like, you know, this is a Catholic thing. And Catholics do drink. And that is very true. So it was probably about, uh, I don't know, 10 teams. And they were all popping beer all day. Like in the morning. And I was just, I managed to make it through all that. I didn't drink. Everybody was like, Robert, you did Why are you drinking a beer? And I was like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm just kind of recovering. Because I haven't really, you know, told all these people. So they were, I was just getting hammered all day long with wine, drinking beer and Anyway, we, we we cooked our chili, and we got the People's Choice Award, so we did good. And we placed third in the judging, but we got the People's Choice, so that was pretty cool. So after all that, that that, that started around 7 and ended around 3.30. And on my way home, I was just exhausted. It was raining, and I pulled pulled over at the gas station and got two big beers, the big ones, like 24 ounces. And I decided I'd get pizza for the family. That was the one thing I did a lot when I 
when I drank, um, I don't even know if my wife realizes it, but I would always order out because that gave me an extra leg of my drinking. It gave me an extra excuse to make it when I came in as far as time-wise. So Rob Roberts, I, I, just fast forward to this morning. When you, so you woke yeah. up You woke up this morning, you were listening to the podcast, you're drinking coffee or you're drinking alcohol in the car? I, was, I drank beer this morning. My wife, uh, last night, I, I didn't act drunk, but I, she, she smelled it on me. And then she ran to my text and saw that I had texted my buddy on Saturday night about drinking. I had told him that I was ready to drink or whatever. So she, she came upstairs when I went to sleep and, and let me have it. And so I was feeling sorry for myself. So I got up this morning feeling sorry for myself and, and having a case of the fuckets. Case and, um, of the fuckets, yeah. And Robert, yeah. your buddy Jason, which is that's that's a case of the yet scale, right? You are not a yet at the progressive state as your buddy Jason. And it sounds like Jason is yep. riding his elevator down at an down. exorbitant pace, which is sad to say. Yeah. And that's for me too, yep. Robert. If I get back on this elevator, hit the down button, take that drink, I'm going down fast. I'm going to have my pork, mm-hmm. instead, you know, instead of pork loins, I don't know, my Pop-Tarts are just going to be burnt. I, I never even get to that <laughs> stage. And it sounds like, Robert, you are A, getting your ass kicked by alcohol, but B, getting your ass kicked by yourself. Are, are you just beating yeah. yourself up too much? You know, maybe I am. Of course, I, I mean, I guess I have a hard time accepting that because you know, I feel like I need to beat myself up to beat this thing. I don't, I don't know. I mean, everybody in my therapy group tells me that I'm, I'm beating myself up, and I'm just way, I'm, I'm way too hard on every little thing that I that I take on. I'm, I'm too hard on myself with that. And, but at the same time, my response to them is, well, shit, what am I supposed to be? I mean, damn, I need to be hard on myself to stop this thing. But they just kind of all, group wise, they all say that you're just, what, I mean, you're on a level of, I mean, you're on a planet, you're, you're on a, out there on a planet on your own with, with this. Robert, let me ask you this question. Yourself. So, you know, say, say somebody gets lung cancer and they don't, they've never smoked a cigarette in their life. Do you think those people are beating themselves up or just any cancer in general? Do they think they're like, oh man, they're they're not beating themselves up because they got a disease called cancer. Robert, you've got a disease called alcoholism and, and we're beating yourself up. And sure, I've done the same thing myself, but man, you can't beat yourself up. It's hard, right? Yeah, it's hard. It's It's hard. hard. I guess I'm just at a... I just don't know what to do at this at this point. I'm just so it's just a it's just a feeling. I guess it's about the one thing I can say. Um, I, I, yeah, I guess I am beating myself up, but at the same time, I'm having like I did in our interview. I'm having a hard time with the goodbye thing. At the same time, I I see my friends like Jason that, that are just their life is just looking like total crap and depressing. And I I, I, wit, I witness that, and I'm I'm just you know it's just a, a weird position I'm in right now. It's just a, a just a tough position but i don't feel sorry for myself i mean i'm mad at myself if anything and maybe that maybe that correlates to beating myself up oh yeah mad you should not be mad at yourself because it's a disease robert you know i don't know the answers and there's a there's so much literature out there not a lot of people have the answers this baffling thing but just one suggestion is you know like that saturday that chili cook off say you've got 10 no's in you right you're like hey you want a beer robert no hey you want a beer robert no hey do you want a wine cooler robert no you got 10 no's and that 11th no is a yes right maybe expand you've you've already made these steps you told your wife you told your mom shit tell jason tell your other friends you know right put a fly i don't say a flyer but do an email and just say hey guys just to let you know this is what's going on in my life i appreciate it next year's chili cook off don't offer me a pbr because it's that's just one more chance because i i know that feeling robert that when you get that wave over you like i'm gonna drink tonight unless i'm shackled to a brick wall i'm drinking right 
And it's just yeah. that one more Straight opportunity second. you're going to miss. People are like, oh, that's yeah. Robert. You know, he, he's he's trying to quit drinking. Let's let's not offer right. him beer. What do you think about right. that? That would be awesome, and I need to do that. I need to get the courage up to do that. For whatever reason, I have a hard time telling these people. Oh, I, I know the reason. Them, you it's, know, I, it's terrifying. I know the reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was not a problem for me to tell all my close friends, my family and all that when I did all that back in May. But for whatever reason, these people that are like, you know, my they're my friends, but they're not my friends, if you know what I mean. It's, it's harder to tell them for whatever reason. Anyway, that's kind of, uh, yeah, you're right. I need to just let them know, and then they won't bother me. They'll leave me alone, and I won't have to deal with all those no's. Robert, it's, an, it's, an amazing thing happened yes. in the small town of Bozeman, Montana. Usually when there's a successful hot air balloon launch, they put that on the front page of the paper. However, this day it was different. There was an article about the recovery elevator and how I was an alcoholic in the small town of Bozeman, Montana. Everybody read the article, close friends, friends of friends. And I mean, I was terrified and I understand it, but an amazing thing happened is Robert, the majority of people, they're pulling for you. They're, they're cheering for you. So many people, and it happened last night actually, and the article came out two months ago. But uh, they're they're like, "Oh my god, I read I read that program you've created." I'm like, "Well, you know, it's not a program; it's a podcast." But everybody that I've met is like, "Dude, good job! That's so awesome! I had no idea." And it's a remarkable thing, man. Just give it a try. Get outside your comfort zone and and walk next door to your neighbor and just say, "Hey, let's have a chat." I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's good advice. I agree. I agree. I need to open up more. The funny thing is with me is that I write a I write a, a column in a local paper, and I've actually written a column about exactly that. Really? In the column that I wrote, I, I open up about being an alcoholic, and it's a really good column in my opinion. But when I first read it to my wife, she, she thought it was great, but she wasn't quite sure about doing that. Because, you know, I am in the deep south where a lot of people are Baptist, and, and Baptists around here have to drink in private. So there's a stigma, I get an, an, an extra stigma in the deep south when it comes to a big baptist town where uh, if you are an open alcoholic you might get to look a lot but you know what it's, at some point i may just get the buckets on that and just say you know screw all these people that's where i'm at anyway but my wife she's not quite comfortable with that yet i would love to just send that column to the paper and they would definitely publish it and it would just be out and and everybody that reads that in jackson that would be sweet you know, that's your but, decision to make. My yeah, suggestion would be publish it. But yeah, you're going to get three yeah. things. You're going to get some weird looks. But number two, you're going to get a lot of respect as well. And mm. number three, you might get this weird thing called prolonged sobriety too. It might be yeah. that thing that puts you over the edge and gives you that hope. Yeah. I don't know. And I do feel like I need that one extra thing to get me over the saying goodbye hump. Once I get that, I feel like I will, I will kick ass. In recovery, once I get that goodbye problem that I'm having, I do think that. Goodbye, Norma Jean, Elton John. Right. <laughs> Time Norma to say goodbye. Jean in a red dress. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Robert, we're going to check in again in one, two, three weeks because uh, yeah. I love it, man. Stop beating yourself up. You've been knocked down 117 times. This is your 118th time you're getting up, and I love that about you. You know, you believe it or not, Robert, you're an inspiration to myself. I'm not even joking. Even though you've got, you know, 30 minutes of sobriety, probably keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Paul. I don't know how the hell I'm an inspiration, but I, I appreciate you saying that. You are. I appreciate it. You are. And, you are. And you're an inspiration to a lot of those people who have not fallen down 117 times. You're an inspiration to the people right. who haven't even tried to quit drinking because it's not easy. It, it's not. So it's not. Keep it's it not up. Easy. We're going to check in enough. again. And uh, thanks for your time, Robert. Absolutely, Paul. Thank you.
You might be an alcoholic if you might be an alcoholic if you get thrown out of a bar in Dallas. That is literally called the double white on their 80s hairband cover night after refusing to stop mooning people. That one's from Amber. This one's from Helen. You might be an alcoholic if you still feel guilty walking down the street drinking water out of a plastic bottle because in the past that water used to be vodka. This one's from Nick. You might be an alcoholic if every cocktail you make for yourself contains more booze than mixer. This one's from Joy. You might be an alcoholic if you run into a glass sliding door twice in one night, leaving your face imprinted in the glass. This one's from Nikki. You might be an alcoholic if you learned how to never have a hangover again, and you just keep going. Send me your personalized you might be an alcoholic if at info at recoveryelevator.com. Now, in a previous episode, I had asked for a virtual slap because in my recovery, I have toyed around with chewing tobacco and nicotine gum. And that virtual slap does somewhat contradict what I just said about stop beating yourself up. Hey guys, send me a virtual slap, kick my ass. But the whole beauty of it, it's also accountability. I got several virtual slaps. I'm talking like in the 20 to 30 range. And that's just within four days since I last put out that last podcast episode. There's a difference where the virtual slap that I told people to give me creates accountability instead of myself just intrinsically giving myself a virtual slap or physically slapping myself for toying around with these stupid ideas like chewing tobacco or nicotine gum to find that ulterior state of mind. However, Pablo, this is disease. We are not perfect. If you do do chewing tobacco, please don't effing do that today, Pablo. I'm not going to beat you up. This is a work in progress. We are so far from perfect. I mean, look at the coffee table we built downstairs. There's still nails coming out of the side of it. So I am so far from perfect. And again, I don't think I want to be perfect. If you're out there listening and you're beating yourself up and you say, you got this on your own, but then 24 hours later, it's like Bill Murray in the Groundhog Day, there's got to be a change. For number one, stop kicking the shit out of yourself. Number two, go to your first AA meeting. Tell somebody, send that text, tell your loved one, hell, join the community. This is something I can say with full confidence. Drink the Kool-Aid with this community of Recovery Elevator. Join the Recovery Elevator private accountability group on Facebook. Just search Recovery Elevator on Facebook. Request to join and we'll approve it. Or email us at info at recoveryelevator.com with your Facebook email address that's associated with Facebook, and we'll get you in. I am in this group daily, along with about 265 other members of us. We're putting videos up. We're giving words of encouragement. We're laughing. There has to be humor in recovery, and that's a fact. Recovery Elevator, we know how we close this thing out. You took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this. <laughs>